0: Welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore major In this episode, we're going to be having a look at a book which I've been reading over on my other podcast, which is called Rare Nautical Reads. Over there, I take advantage of the fact that we were very kindly gifted about a year ago an entire sailing library, a thousand books, all um, sailing books, design books, uh, meteorology, seamanship, anything you can imagine, all around sailing all brought together over um, a lifetime, really, by the uh, the father of the kind benefactor. Uh, and The chap's name was um, Rudy Harsey. And Rudy's son, Bruce, donated us the uh, library. Really, uh, you know, are you interested out of your personal interest in sailing? But I've managed to transform that into an entire separate podcast. And Rudy's books have now been uh, spread, you know, far and wide. We're just coming up to about, uh, I'm trying to think how many... Uh, downloads we've already got on that uh, web uh, on that podcast. I think it's a ten thousand, but I'll click through while we're uh, while we're here. It may be a little bit more than that, but um, a lot of people downloading those, and the feedback seems to be that they're very good for um, you know long flights and sanding and sailing and things where you just want to listen into something. My concept for making the podcast was that um, I spent about ten years uh, between. The ages of 25 and about 35 like basically only consuming sailing non-fiction uh when i was reading and i read you know i still do read quite a lot um certainly read more back in the day now i consume a lot more of it via audiobooks but consuming non-sailing um uh, sorry, not say non-fiction sailing uh, text nothing non-sailing at that time with the idea that this was a way of Improving my skills and improving my knowledge um, at a much faster rate than was available just through my sailing time, I think that's pretty logical, and also recognizing that people put huge amounts of effort into um, the books that they write, and that a uh, book then tells you you know about a a huge period of time that happened in someone's life. They might have spent a year sailing through the Northwest Passage. You can consume that in a week's worth of reading and avoid the year going through the Northwest Passage, but take from it some lessons that can be used in your everyday sailing and that's what I think it's all about it's about communicating um the the things which our forebearers in sailing um have to communicate to us right so this fantastic library suddenly has ended up being the the root of the rare nautical reads um podcast and uh yeah if i just click through here now on the uh the dashboard for the podcast let's have a see Oh, 20. So there you go. I'm not remembering correctly. So twenty thousand. In fact, we've just passed that today. Uh, Okay, that's cool. Twenty thousand downloads of the Rare Nautical Reads podcast, and we've already got five or six books there. Um, But one of them uh, I've been reading, and it really ties into what we've been looking at with the survival at sea, um, the the RYA sea survival book that we've been working our way through. And I thought that it'd be good to. Look, at the end of the day, you know, there's a bit of a business going on behind here as well. So if you're listening to this and you like sailing and you can stand the sound of my voice, you may may like rare nautical reads. Have a look at that. But also, if you don't access this bit of knowledge through that method, um, I would like to share it with you here on the main mariner podcast because I think there's something to be taken from this particular book. And the book is called The Bombard Story. Now if you have already been listening to this as an audiobook, or if you know it from elsewhere, you'll already know this. But I'm going to quickly read through the um, the, the jackets, uh, of the book, the dust jacket's uh, description, and I think that gives us a pretty fair idea of what's going on in the book. There's some specific specific things here that I'd like to draw out, and I'd also like to draw your attention to a book which has incredible depth and meaning. Which um, I don't think there was any other way of accessing this. Uh, the original was written in French. This is a translation. It's an excellent translation by a chap called Brian Connell. And uh, yeah, only because we've got this uh, this library of Rudy Harsley's do I get to finally understand what truly is the Bombard story and the, the lessons therein. So let's have a look. Um, when the Frenchman Dr. Alain Bombard crossed the Atlantic in a rubber dinghy, he took with him no supplies, no supplies except a sealed box of emergency rations. This box was still sealed when he landed near Bridgetown in Barbados. Dr. Bombard had proved his point that man can live off the sea. His crossing had taken 65 days and during that time he had conjured enough food and water from the Atlantic to keep himself not only alive but in reasonably good health. His experiment, if so sensational an achievement can be given such a sober name, followed a hunch that had come to him during his medical training. Dr. Bombard, a keen small boat sailor, having begun to consider the plight of shipwrecked men, came to the conclusion that many lives might be saved if the sea could be fully exploited. He engaged in laboratory work on the vitamin content of raw fish and plankton, which proved adequate to support life, then went on to investigate the more difficult question of water supplies. A certain amount of fresh water can be obtained from fish, and Dr. Bombard came to the conclusion That this could be supplemented by seawater provided it was drunk in limited quantities it was this challenge to the most firmly established of all seafaring taboos which aroused most skepticism in his critics who implied that his theories though they might look impressive on paper would be disastrous to the man who tried to put them into practice dr bombard decided to become a guinea pig He made himself as nearly as possible into an authentic castaway, choosing a boat similar to the dinghies used in air-sea Rescue and equipping it only with such things that such a dinghy might reasonably carry. In this craft, without supplies, he undertook to cross the Atlantic. His trial run from Monaco to Tangier came so near disaster that his voluntary companion would go no further. Unabashed, Dr. Bombard went on alone. His experiences are described in this book with impressive simplicity so that any resume of them from here would be an impertinence. It is enough to say that as the reader follows Dr. Bombard's absurd and gallant little craft on its terrifying way, he feels that courage and endurance were its driving powers as much as wind and water, and that its captain has not only discovered a new technique for shipwrecks, but also won a place in the front rank of an adventure story writer. So what do we get from that? A few, I apologize if there's some uh, mistakes in my reading of it there, but it's. Uh, I think you get the point. It's um, What Dr. Bombard did, I think, <clears throat> has been well known by the French-speaking sailing community for decades. You know, He did this in ni- the early 1950s, 1952. And uh, there was a kind of an assault on his work very soon thereafter by people who did not engage in the same uh, level of practical experimentation that Dr. Bombard did by putting himself into a raft and crossing the Atlantic. But those people concluded that um, it was impossible. They almost implied that he had cheated, which uh, once you read the book, you realize is basically impossible. Even if you took with you loads of water, um, it's going to be stale and dead and finished and used up by the time you're even a quarter of the way across. I think just to put it in context, the The people that came along later, as one particular German scientist that came along later and said that this stuff was uh, dangerous and absurd. Um, He attempted to do some small experiment with it, but he went into it. um, uh, He only drank the seawater when he was already very thirsty. And when you read the text from Dr. Bombard, you realize he's very carefully balancing his ideas on a knife blade, the kind of risks that only someone who's shipwrecked would be willing to take. But if you're in a situation where you're shipwrecked and you're in a rubber raft and you're you know, hundreds, if not thousands of miles away from the sea, what choice do you have? If you're somebody setting off on a voyage across the Atlantic, I don't think Dr. Bombard was implying that you can just drink seawater and catch fish and you, you know, can avoid a trip to the supermarket. Um, his, um, his, his research um, has a lot of kind of importance for me. If you've listened to the early podcasts, uh, the very first couple of ones that we did here with the Mariner, um, you'll know that I was in a situation on an Open 60 racing around the world. And I got into a predicament where sailing from um, Punta del Este in Uruguay, kind of under the bulge of South America and looking to sail up and across the front of the Caribbean Sea and into Charleston, South Carolina, I ended up in a situation my water maker went offline. And it went offline as I was approaching the, um, the equator and it was offline until I got to Charleston and it did not rain the entire way. So there was two just slightly over two weeks, um, that I didn't have a proper supply of water. And the water maker, after a lot of work, I'm a pretty practical person, I was on a sat phone to the technical director of the water maker manufacturer, and basically it came down to the fact that the membrane had sucked in the chemical, possibly from you know a ship I'd gone past, or whatever it was, some kind of oil-based thing. And even though we attempted to wash the membrane with warm soapy water and all this kind of stuff, we couldn't get it working. More than about a cup of water a day so that's eight ounces of water about 200 250 ml of water and so i had to add oh, i had two choices i can either stop racing um, and give up on the round the world plan that i had the round the world dream i had the the position i was in in that race uh in that in that leg of the race or i could keep going if i could find a way to do it and you can imagine if you were practical and you were at sea and you were trying to work this out and you're in this you know chosen situation i'd like to add also that recife was about 300 miles away, which an open 60 is at most two days sail. So I could get out the situation if I wanted. I didn't want to get out the situation. What I wanted to do was find a way to keep going and get on through. And that's what ended up happening. I mixed seawater with that one cup of precious fresh water that I could muster each day. I looked at making solar stills. I looked at making Liebig condenser out of um, the engine exhaust. I looked at all sorts of things. But discovered that actually what I I could get by quite easily by mixing my cup of water with a similar volume of seawater, by adding some sugar so that it wasn't quite so repulsive to to take in. And then I spent a lot of time inside the boat where I let about two inches of water sit in the bilge and I sat or lay in that water and that seemed to um, rehydrate me or hydrate me or whatever enough that um, i was able to make it through without any renal failure or any issues or even dark urine or anything else so i've talked to um um uh, mds about this in the past i've talked to people who are you know got a lot more understanding of how the body works than i have and they're absolutely categorical about the fact there is no possible way you can take in seawater and it can somehow be of any benefit to you and yet <laughs> i've been through a situation for two weeks where i did and it was bloody hot (laughs) and i'm working in open 60 and i'm racing it and all the rest of it uh that's my small experience and then dr bombard which i based that on did 65 days actually he did more than that because he was in the raft doing other trips as well which we'll discuss a little bit later now but um there is i think what i want to communicate with this specifically is the fact that um if you don't take this as being the piece of knowledge you're going to use when you go into a life raft you need to have something you know like there's there's, there's, there's gear on board the life raft. When you go into it, um, there is uh, the limitations of what the life raft itself is made from, um, the strength of the seas that you're caught in, all this kind of stuff. But as we know from quite a lot of books that are out there, 116 Days Adrift by the Baileys, um, 70, is the book Adrift, where Steve Callahan describes being adrift for is it 77 days, um, you can end up in a life raft for a quite long time. The idea that you're going to get rescued no matter what is predicated on the fact that, um, you know, you're going to have an EPUB, you're going to maybe have an AIS beacon, you're going to have a SART, you're going to have all sorts of stuff. Um, and yet I think we can all pretty much guess that within the realms of logic, it's very likely that people have been lost at sea from their life rafts because they've just never picked up. Right. So here we have a very niche piece of information which we could take in by just listening even just to this one hour podcast or going over, hint, hint, and going and listen to it on uh, rare nautical reads. And that there might be this thing there which just exists as a piece of knowledge in the back of your head, which when alloyed with the the gear that's in the life raft, namely the fishing kit, um, there may be a possibility of extending someone's life just from having listened to it, Interesting yet hidden piece of information. So let's get into the book. That's my kind of concept here. I'm trying to help, and I will say again, I'm not a medic. I'm not uh, medically trained. Anything beyond anything I have to do on the boat, I have my own personal anecdotal experience of this. But I could have cruised a lot closer to disaster than I know. Um, Dr. Bombard's work is definitely someone who's an MD, but he himself would say he would be limited by the um, by the the medicine of his day, by the understanding of his day. Um, But, uh, you know, his critics at the time said that uh, he had damaged his renal system so badly that uh, there was no possible way that he wasn't going to have serious um, medical complications onwards in his life. And yet, uh, Dr. Alain Bombard um, lived a nice long life. He lived on till uh, 2005 um, and he was born in 1924. So what's that, 81 years old? 81 years old, yeah. So... He had a, um, <clears throat> uh, an incredible career both before and after this event. At the time, he had his uh, share of critics, but he had also a lot of people who understood what he was going to do. And I guess that's where we feed into the, the book review that this um, podcast uh, you know, represents. Um, where did this come about? And uh, he gave uh, a lot of really good information at the beginning of the book, which I think then uh, creates a foundation that we can understand why he's so diligent in what he does. Why he holds out the way he does, and I think also gives us a greater understanding of the the nature of the person, the the the, the solid character of the person. So, um, I'll jump in now and have a look at uh, the 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 early part of the book here, and just give you an idea of what it was that he was uh, he was trying to make happen with this crazy experiment. So, I guess the first thing that we should discuss is like why he chose to go and do this, and I think that then dovetails into why he was so fastidious about continuing with the voyage. Uh, which we're going to hear about. Um, I'm not giving away too much to say that there's a point where he has an opportunity to dip out early um, and seek out comfort and shelter and a, a nice warm meal and a, and a, and a drink. Uh, but he decides to continue on, which caused a lot of concern for those involved in the experiment uh, later. But I think here in the foreword and the early parts of the book, we can get a bit of an idea of the situation that was, you know, the, the world reality on the water in the 19... 19- 50s and and their times before. So he says uh, here, page 11, the frigate Lema was lost on the 2nd of July 1816 on a sandbank about 100 miles off the African coast. 149 of the survivors, passengers, soldiers and a few officers had to trust themselves to a hastily constructed raft towed by the ship's boats. The tow broke in circumstances which have never been explained and the raft was abandoned to the fury of the Atlantic. There were six barrels of wine and two of fresh water on board, but the raft was not sighted again until 12 days later. By then, there were only 15 survivors, 10 of whom died shortly after rescue. So the issue of people being on the ocean and lost was, you know, uppermost. That's 1816. Let's spool forward nearly 100 years on the 15th of April 1912. The liner Titanic hit an iceberg in North Atlantic and sank in a few hours. When the first relief ships arrived, three hours after line had disappeared, a number of people had either died or gone mad in the lifeboats. Significantly, no child over the age of 10 was included among those who had paid for their terror by madness and for their madness by death. The children were still at the age of reason. So I think he was starting to identify that there's like, there are reasons why people die. The ship sinks, they're in the water. Yes, they're in the lifeboats. Yes, but there's a lot of evidence that he's drawing on to start to get a, a, a feel of how people fare once they go into the water. These examples confirm for me the overwhelming importance of morale. Yeah, statistics show that 90% of the survivors of shipwreck die within three days, yet it takes longer than that to perish of hunger and thirst. When his ship goes down, a man's whole universe goes with it. Because he no longer has a deck under his feet, his courage and reason abandon him. Even if he reaches a lifeboat, he is not necessarily safe. Yeah, so this is something which I'm very aware of. As I often point out, I've worked for Outward Bound for a number of years. And Outward Bound was set up by the German educationist Kurt Hahn in the 1940s when the Second World War had broken out. And it started to become very obvious that with the German wolf pack out in force in the Atlantic lot, thousands and thousands of tons of shipping going to the bottom... Um, people being cast into lifeboats in very desperate circumstances, it started to become very, very obvious that older people who had a stronger personality or spirituality, not necessarily religion, but had a stronger spirit were able to continue on, where the younger people who hadn't experienced anything like that before perished. And they perished before they would have done of cold or hunger or thirst. So Kurt Hahn proposed a training school for young merchant naval cadets, which at that time was all men, so young men. And um, they went out to Aberystwyth in Wales and they spent uh, 21 days, I think it was, out there, it might have been 28 at that point, Um, being beasted basically out across the hills and orienteering and uh, canoeing, kayaking, uh, abseiling, climbing, out roughing it for nights on end. And there was also actually a specific bit of training they did called drown proofing where they learned to um, tread water for a very long period of time which is part of their final challenge but overall the effect they were the instructors were looking for was to just toughen them up and that was so that they could have the possibility of higher morale in a difficult circumstance you've got to kind of be ready for it haven't you you've got to have had an experience of what it is to tough it out before you can just ace a tough situation so um, bombard is feeling the same thing no doubt having looked to himself at what happened during the war years um, now let me cut a quick scan forward here I did have a bit of a look through uh, I read the book over the last couple of uh, well I guess months it ended up being but um, it's uh, uh, the last couple of uh, weeks specifically here we go shipwrecks this is um, beginning of um, chapter two purpose Shipwrecks fall into two categories, those that occur on the coast and those on the high seas. Of the 200,000 human beings who die every year, this is 1950 odd, 200,000 people who die every year as a result of accidents at sea, just over half lose their lives in coastal wrecks. Just over half lose their lives in coastal wrecks. That's what all those little markings are on the chart, those little sticky drawings of boats. That's the end of somebody's Life, a hundred thousand people a year. Assistance is usually at hand for the survivors, but through the devoted labors of the lifeboat institutions in each country, absolutely fantastic. On the high seas, the situation is different. Here, about fifty thousand unfortunates die each year, more or less at the moment their ship goes down. Okay, so some on the coast, they may die, they may have some kind of rescue, but they're ashore quickly, or the lifeboats pick them up, and on they go into. Uh, some kind of like safer situation on the high seas. 50,000 die with the boat underneath them and they're gone. And that leaves, as he says here, another 50,000 who might have been saved. They, in their turn, fall into two categories. There are two sorts of ship. First, the big liners and naval vessels in permanent radio contact with land the whole time they're at sea. If one of them found us, everyone knows almost exactly where the disaster has happened. And other ships hurry to the rescue. We've seen the example of the Titanic. What the survivors need is simply a moral injection to enable them to regard rescue as a certainty. The problem of a prolonged fight for survival hardly presents itself. Now that's where most of us are these days, I think. You know, um, we've got radio contact, we've got sat phone contact, we've got iridium go up and going, you've maybe got sat C, you've got EPUB, search you've got AIS beacons, you're in an area where there's lots of other folks, okay? The, pro- the, the problem of a prolonged fight for survival hardly presents itself or well, certainly that's what we're telling ourselves that's what i'm telling people when we are doing the safety briefings which i've done hundreds and hundreds of um you know we probably won't need these life rafts and if we do with will be in them for a very short period of time then he says then come the other types of vessel cargo boats tramps deep sea trawlers and fishing boats in general normally their radio contact with land is limited to a fixed rendezvous every 6 12 or sometimes only every 24 hours Between each signal, they may cover a considerable distance. If something happens to them, their exact position is difficult to determine and the lot of the survivors is correspondingly grim. So we exist in some like hinterland between these two groups as described in 1950. We are in much more constant contact. However, you may not have made contact with someone who's actually looking out for you for a very long time. Like family and friends will know that you're often away on the boat. Um, the Coast Guard may know that your passage plan gives you four days for your journey or that the, um, I don't know who you'd be talking to. You might have talked to a lifeboat. You may have passed a ship at sea. There's all sorts of folks who you can kind of communicate with. But unless some of them are specifically looking out for you, how many days until someone says, hey, there's a, there's a problem here, particularly if something happens and your EPUB can't be set off or your EPUB's damaged or it's lost or it's separated from you in the life raft or whatever it is. If there's no actual signal of where are you, then we end up very quickly in the least favorable group as viewed in 1950, which suddenly doesn't feel quite that good, does it? It's not like there's um, hoverboards in the life raft or, you know, laser signaling devices to the stations on the moon. We just basically got what they would have had then food, water, paddles, bit of medical stuff, fishing gear, not much else. Um, the lot of the survivors, is correspondingly grim. These are the men and women who are always uppermost in my thoughts and whom my experiment was designed to assist. To my dismay, I discovered that relatively little is done for them. If their ship goes down, they are considered as lost. Only in the most favorable circumstances does a search last for as long as 10 days, and even then, very little hope is entertained of sighting them. So... You know, we're we're talking about the um, survival in cold water and obviously the RYA survival book goes on to many other aspects of the safety gear that's on board of the boat. We'll be reading those chapters in the coming weeks. Um, but I thought it was good to recognize firstly that we're not in any different situation. Once you go into a life raft, if you don't have the EPUB with you or a sat phone or a VHF, you're kind of you're kind of where everyone's been forever, right? So that's where I think this piece of information is important to 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 have. Um, so he says my research work came under five headings. I looked up every possible reference on the history of previous shipwrecks and the lessons to be learnt from them, the case histories of survivors, fish and their chemical composition, the various methods of catching fish, and the study of favorable winds and currents. Okay, and that's I think an important thing to add into here. If I go forward just a couple of pages in this book, um, and the book to remind you is called The Bombard Story. Um, It's written by Dr. Alain Bombard, and then it's translated by a chap called uh, Brian Connell. If you want to get your own copy, there's a link in the description. Um, There are nice little tables here, which is where he's looking at all different sorts of fish. Ray, basking shark, dolphin, dolphin meaning the dolphin fish, the mahi-mahi, as we call it now. Ray's bream, sardines, anchovy, bonito bass, mullet mackerel, tunny fish roe. He's then looking at the different kinds of salts which are in drinking water that we may you know process on a daily basis like what salts are there so you've got the water that you need you've got the salts in the water then you've got a known amount of nutrition or human needs so that you can then look at fish and look at fish row and plankton and all the stuff that you might be able to extract from the sea and say what amount of that is what percentage is water what percentage is protein and what percentage is fat and therefore start to get a feeling of you know, on a subsistence level how much fish are you going to need now, whenever you read an account of people in uh, boats like adrift at sea, um, the fish very quickly come to the underside of the boat. Steve Callahan, the uh, the Bailey's here with um, Dr. Bombard, and any other story you really want to come across, you just have to have a bit of a plan as to what you're going to do with it. Certainly, with the Bailey's, they got into a situation where they were consuming uh, far too much protein um, and didn't have enough fresh water to slake their thirst, and ended up with sore guts. I think that here with um, Dr. Bombard, as we go through the book, you'll discover he uh, he came across his own difficulties. But to to underline again, he's not saying this is like a pleasant way or an option to cross an ocean. You don't, you know, do your vittling by saying I've got my fish hooks. The point is, can you survive on it? And um, what his uh, research showed was that, yes, you can. Yes, you can survive on it. And I know that maybe there'll be people that have a bit of a, a problem with this even now, even after we've got this story of someone crossing the Atlantic for 65 days. It's, <laughs> it's one of those things, reading this book, that I got to the end of it, I went, God, someone should redo that um, adventure just so that uh, the modern world can see once again uh, you know, how, how intelligent this guy's uh, uh, observation was and how important it was Uh, to to get this done at the time. And then it kind of got washed off a little bit that people said, well, I didn't really do it. Um, (laughs) This is the last, after me thinking, oh, I could do this, you know, kind of how my brain works. I'm like, I could drift across the Atlantic for 65 days. Literally the last paragraph reads, I would like to add one more thought. A human life should only be risked in such an experiment as mine if some useful purpose is being served. If there are any young people who think they see a shortcut to fame in setting off in a raft for America or elsewhere, I beg them to reflect or come and see me first. Uh, What's it say here now? Uh, Led astray by false hopes, encouraged by some initial success or misled into thinking they are on some pleasure trip. They will not realize how desperate is the fight for life until it is too late and will no longer have the time to marshal their courage. Panic will only set in more quickly for having risked their lives to no useful purpose. There will be other and better reasons for such a sacrifice. So <laughs> in the very conclusion of the book, he's like, hey, Chris, you, d- you don't need to go and prove this again. But he did prove it. And then they say it kind of got washed from history. People now even would say it's not possible to do this. We can only underline he did his research. He knew how much water he'd be able to get out of um, the fish like, uh, you know, very, very low salinity water. And then when rain did indeed come along on his journey, he caught as much water as he could and kept as much water as he could on his boat. So um, I think from my point of view and my personal experience, I'm uh, happy that uh, this can be part of a survival tactic, but it is not certainly to be relied on as the only thing. I think the other thing to talk about here is like, what's the boat that he's on? That's part of his preparation as well. I do apologize if there's lots of the sound of thumbing of pages behind the microphone here as I'm going through the book. Well, you know, I'm trying to, you know how difficult it is when you're trying to show somebody something in a book that's important, like, hey, it's in this magazine. I'm just going to find the article and then uh, you can't find it for love and the money, can you? So I'm I'm caught in the same bind. I could, of course, have put um, little markers on each page, but um, I didn't. So uh, the boat he's on. So what we would know this as is a Zodiac uh rib rigid inflatable boat very very early design of this 1950 um it's i don't think that this would be hypalon i don't know when hypalon was developed and from the way it breaks down in the sun i would say this is like rubberized nylon is essentially what it is so it's the thinner stuff that's less um less durable in the sun and certainly by the end of his journey by the end of all of his journeys combined together, because they say he does this bit across the Mediterranean and then from Gibraltar to well, from, from the North African coast to the Canaries. And um, by the end of that, it's starting to come apart. So I'd say it's rubberized uh, nylon and uh, it's, uh, I believe, 12 feet long and five feet wide. So it's not a big boat. I wish I could find that bit, but I've, I've read enough of the book to be able to guess that pretty accurately. Um, and they do end up getting hold of like a radio so they can listen to for a signal. And uh, in the first instance, the first version of the, uh, the, the trip, the kind of um, warm ups in the Mediterranean, they do actually have a transmitting set. But uh, very quickly, it uh, becomes very apparent that it's incredibly complex for them at that time to be able to you know, propagate a decent signal. And indeed, there is a uh, an issue later on where they flip the raft and it's uh, it's gone, and they never have the money to um, to to get another one. So he um, he's got a few bits and bobs on the boat. Most of what he has to do to be able to stick with his concept here of catching fish is focus on you know uh, things that can assist him in the, the fishing process uh, early on in the, in the trip. So he, he later discovers that in the mahi-mahi fish, or he knew it already and put it to practice, the mahi-mahi fish, often called the dolphin fish, that kind of long, thin, tapering fish with a, a fin running all the way down its, uh, its back. And then that high forehead, they flash all sorts of different colors. Um, in their gill, or around their gill aperture, there's a bone there, which can be very easily turned into a, a hook. And then you need just something rather to put on the hook. He seems to use flying fish a lot and you can get into, uh, fishing rather quickly. You need some kind of line to make that happen. So he's got that, he's got the basics, he's got some oars, he's got, um, a knife, which he uses kind of bent over so he can jab it through things. And when he pulls it back out, it sticks in a lot of stuff and pulls it, pulls it onto the board. He kind of like works himself out a gaff hook, um, what else has he got on board he's got a little bit of medical stuff a little bit of antibiotics such as are available at the day um, his intention is to do uh, a full checks of himself like uh, a, a physical workup basically himself he is an md um, he's going to do that every day so he's got paper he's got pencils that kind of stuff but he hasn't really got anything other than what's in a life raft kit today and he does not take with him anything to eat or drink he has a sealed chest with him for the entirety of his journeys and um he ends up uh on his main journey they never crack into it so he sets off with a little bit of food a little bit of water on board but but never gets into you know needing it but uh, it is there on the boat with him should things get to the worst but as you'll discover his tenacity is such that uh he's never going to let himself get into that kind of uh situation he just keeps going and going for it as much as he can so initially he sets off uh, from Monaco and he's looking to do an initial trip down with this little 12 foot boat. Now the name of the boat the boat is called Le the Heretic, which when I in my reading of the book I was not sure enough of my French pronunciation to call it Le Erétique the entire time because I do not have very strong French powers. So I just called it The Heretic and I think that reminded me as I was going along that he even at the time knew that everyone thought that he was a like a like a scientific heretic almost not a religious heretic but a scientific heretic that uh, everyone said the absolute taboo is do not drink seawater at sea i would say we can all agree that done in a uh, an unsanctioned and uh, not thinking it through that'd be a very bad idea but done in an intelligent manner that seems to have some some benefits but his little boat is uh is the the, the heretic and um they set off with the intention of crossing uh to where are they going to first they're going first to the balearic islands is their their initial idea they want to show that they can sort of do a uh, a short run and that the short run you know proves the the proves the concepts he is pretty pretty sound on his science but there's a lot of people that don't think he's uh actually you know talking any kind of sense so he manages to get a, uh, a chap to come with him, a chap called Jack, who um, is his uh, companion for the first parts of his trip. There's a whole sequence later on where he and Jack uh, split um, because the, 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 the pull of the land is such that he, um, that Jack is too worried about the reality of what it is to cross the Atlantic and too tempted by staying on the land. And they do split up. But Jack proves to be a absolutely fantastic um companion for him in the first parts of their journey as they as they set out from monaco with the intention of going to the balearics and then indeed do make it you know they they do make it they um i think they end up uh a few a few hitches along the way that ends up with them uh taking a, a, a big pat of butter basically and dividing that between themselves for five days uh to try and uh survive when they um they have issue with with getting fish onto the boat but uh i think also the issue is that um Jack is not—he's not the scientist. So he hasn't seen or doesn't like fully believe the numbers or something. He always seems to be a little bit doubtful of what uh, Dr. Bombard has to say. And Dr. Bombard is extra. Can we call him Alan? I think we can call him Alan. Alan is always very keen to point out to Jack that you've got to start drinking the seawater early on in the process before you're dehydrated. Like he's not unaware of the fact it's going to dehydrate you and have an effect on you, but you can't wait till you're sort of hanging out of you know, really, really super dehydrated. And they're like, oh, okay, I'll try some seawater because it's only going to make things worse. So Jack is a very good companion, but he's still a little doubtful as to whether this is really possible. I don't think he feels that pull to help that 50,000 people a year in quite the same way as, uh, as, uh, as, as the doctor does. So, um, after a interesting process of getting from I'm not going to go through and tell you the entire story here after an interesting process of getting from Monaco to uh, Menorca they, uh, they finally touch base with the, um, the, the Balearic Current and get closer to uh, the Balearic Islands and then they have a bit of a hard time as they start to realise just how difficult it is to get Ashore, you know, they are doing these trips where they are setting off from one place to another. The raft basically has a very little mast, like an oars length type mast, and then a very, very little uh, sail attached to it, um, which is able to push them along. Obviously, you can imagine a zodiac weighs absolutely nothing, so they're able to push along and do a pretty good uh, job. They end up going from Monaco, like in loops and twists and all the rest of it from uh down to uh uh, minorca i think first and then ending up in majorca uh, minorca and majorca good i I get those confusing majorca and minorca minorca okay got it um they managed to get themselves ashore and realize how difficult it can be to do the accurate parts of coming to the land that they can maybe drift down on currents they can maybe get winds that push them in roughly the right direction but just like any kind of castaway trying to you know, complete the final part of a of an unexpected journey in an inappropriate vessel, which is what any trip in a life raft is, um, the getting to the land is very, very difficult. And also what can happen is that even though you're in the right wind and going the right way on the current, something can happen where you catch an eddy or you're becalmed or whatever, and you just do big circles out at sea. So this all happens to them. Um, they then um, set off from there and, and head down and go to uh, Casablanca, uh i think do they go to tangier first they they certainly end up in casablanca and for the, the purpose of our quick look at all of this the thing that happens along the way which is uh the beginning of the proms for um the 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 doctor and he, the presentation of his work to the general public they they come in earshot of a vessel called the city Farouch. um which at first doesn't even want to slow down to help them. But um, then they uh, do manage to get in within hailing distance. They shout and and, and flares and all the rest of it, get the the captain come back. And uh, the captain shouts at them, is there something you want? Like he's just met two people in the middle of the ocean in a raft. Um, He's like, is there something you want? Rather as if, and and the doctor here says, rather as if we had stopped him to say, uh, no, thank you very much. (laughs) Please report our position and let us have a few emergency rations. We replied, uh, the, the, the liner then stopped her engine, circled away and stopped about 500 yards off. So people at the time were aware of the fact that they were doing this. And I think to some degree, we're letting them get on with it. But I think the people on the city for Rooch had um, a, I think they, at a, at a, at a philosophical level, the, the officer on that vessel thought it was a bit of a joke and thought it was a bit of a, a problem. And so whilst they did hand over a little bit of... Um, uh food and what have you what they brought home was a story that they had indeed interacted with these guys and that it was all laughable and it was a joke and what they were doing wasn't working um he 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 says uh let me say in spite of my exhaustion i had to use the rudder oar as a skull we reached the side of the ship and exchanged mild conversation with the passengers and the first officer who passed us down some food and water then the captain somewhat of a martinet, appeared come on come on we have no time for experiments he shouted a perfect gentleman, in other words. I think that's with sarcasm in the tone. Jack frowned but said nothing. He had not had a smoke for five days and was hoping at least to be offered a cigarette, but he was not going to ask for one. The first officer speeded things up, but no attempt was made to invite us on board. Then off went the City Farouk with her amiable, sarcastic captain. We did not know how dearly we were to pay for this meeting or how we were to be reproached for accepting this pitiful little stock of rations. Everyone chose to forget that we had spent 10 days out of 14 already without food or fresh water and that on the other four, we had had only raw sea perch and fish juice. The mere fact of accepting this minimum, existence, uh, minimum assistance rather branded us as impostors, although our experiences had not differed so greatly from the survivors of Le Meduce, the, the the vessel and the raft that we heard about earlier. We had held out for a whole fortnight and in spite of their, in spite of their wine and water, most of the survivors of Le Medus were dead when they were picked up on the 12th day. So even at this point in the Atlantic, he and Jack have already proven that they could do uh, a, a amount of time which was greater than those people that died uh, on that raft in the Atlantic when left for 12 days. Remember, there was 100, you know, 100 and something odd people suddenly down to just a few. So at that point, they had already done an amazing thing. But the captain of this vessel the amiable captain of the city fruit as he's uh, put to here um they 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 instantly cast a pall over the entire experiment i think that's what i found when i've talked to people about this is that everyone kind of knows the story obviously it's 70 years ago now but they could say oh yeah but he died didn't he or he had renal problems for the rest of his life or he died young or it was a it was made up or it's like nope that's <laughs> that's not what any of it says so it's uh I don't know if there's more information to modern that would dispute some of the factors that he's got here. But I don't think in 1950 they were having a problem working out the 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 freshwater content of a fish. I don't think that we've got any doubts about that. Just over the page on uh, the beginning of chapter six, he continues the story of the city fruits and says the city fruits steamed rapidly away. And I hope that a captain will never have to make any experiments himself. i.e., go into a life raft. Little did we realize what a cargo of mocking laughter calumny and even insult that ship carried off to rebound on our unlucky heads during the coming months um and i (laughs) think jack gave vent to his fury at the french captain's lack of courtesy and i could only second his remarks so they this is the the point where it starts to get a little tricky for them they start to um come up against not the just the physical bounds of the thing that they're trying to prove and the difficulties of that which are monster but also the fact that um people are just Without any basis of fact, just by whatever the narrative is that's being spun, people are happy to pick a side and then, uh, you know, end up on the opposite side to logic, on the opposite side to science, which is uh, obviously something that uh, still exists today, right? <laughs> Nothing's changed. Um, they managed to go ashore in, let me just get this right, um, in Menorca, in a little town called. Oh, I can almost remember it. Q Okay. And uh, they have a fantastic time there. He tries to take a bit, trip back to France to get a little bit more money for what they're doing and starts to realize just how cold and uh, and uh, uh, difficult the reception is that he gets, that people are kind of off his plan. Yeah. Okay. So then he goes to Tangier. There's a little bit here about uh, the Tangier interlude and he has a nice time there. And to the point that he kind of doesn't really want to uh, lose uh, uh, the 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 time he has on the land, but he goes back to um uh to, to France again to try and get some more uh, money for what they're doing. And um, by the time he gets uh back to um to Tangier, he started to got a, a, get a real sense of the fact that uh, Jack is very tempted by what's going on uh on the boat. That uh, sorry on the on the land, and that doesn't want to particularly go onto the boat anymore. And this is going to become a very important part later on where uh as we say jack does not do the long journey i think it's um uh i think there's a little bit here where he's talking no no he's talking about his patron here there's a bit where he before he starts to tell the story of jack leaving the boat he takes the time to mention what an excellent companion jack was and that he doesn't like um he doesn't have any hard feelings towards him for what in the future he he knows and he foreshadows here is going to be uh, Jack's departure. I think there was honestly a lot of uh, uh, love between them, but um, it just wasn't the right thing. Here we go. He kicks into it in chapter eight. It was at this stage that I began to notice a change in Jack. So at this point, they are in Tangier. They have already gone from Monaco to Menorca. Um, they've come down the coast past Ibiza. They're now on that top left-hand corner of Africa, just outside of the Straits of Gibraltar. we have gone a long, long way in this little raft already on the basis of what Dr. Alain Bombard has come up with as this concept. So it does work. But I think Jack is the one who's more of a a seaman. He's the navigator. He's not a scientist like Dr. Bombard. So I think he's looking at the enormity of the Atlantic and is really starting to get very worried about um, what the reality is going to be of this situation with the two of them on this little boat with no food and water um dr bombard says it was at this stage that i began to notice a change in jack his enthusiasm was ebbing little by little and i learned sometime later that he had told one of our friends if a land keeps us here much longer i.e., tangier i shall never be able to leave um this is where it starts to become difficult in spite of all this active assistance he's talking about people helping them in tangier the weight became interminable jack always found a new reason for putting off our departure either the wind, the tide, or the weather. He was a navigator and I had to conform. But one day a taxi driver told me that everyone in Tangier seemed to know, apart from myself, that Jack had made up his mind to prevent me from continuing and was convinced that I would never attempt it alone. Terribly disheartened for a moment, I was on the verge of giving up. But then I thought what people would say. You see, there's nothing in it. The whole theory is nonsense. I knew it was not nonsense and I was going to prove it. I would go on. Okay? So what we've got now is a situation where Jack is actively trying to dissuade Alain Bombard from setting off on this thing because he knows it's going to be very uncomfy and risking his life and also because the shore is looking better and better. It's exactly what happens with anybody when you're thinking about doing some kind of big trip, whether it's from Fort Lauderdale to the Bahamas or it's across the Atlantic or whatever it is. There's always going to be those who are like, this is what we're doing. So this is what we're doing. And they just go. And then there's a, a large percentage of folks who are like, I want to do it. But it's kind of comfy right here, right now. And I'm not sure I really want to set off and, and, and risk what it might be to being on the sea. Obviously, massively magnified in this situation. But there's that kind of holding back, which can make for a very long, interminable wait. So I'm going to read you this bit now to give you a, a real idea of um, of, of who Alain Bombard is. It says, um, the Spanish ship carried us steadily eastwards. So they've just left Tangier and they're looking to set off on the next part, of, which is down to Casablanca. The Spanish ship carried us steadily eastwards and we finally stopped off at a little beach, almost underneath the house belonging to a friend named Count Ferretto Ferretti. We spent the whole of Tuesday in idleness. On Wednesday morning the wind was still in our favour, but Jack set off for Tangier at about 9 o'clock to make a few last-minute purchases, with the intention of returning as soon as possible. It was the last day we could expect a favourable wind, and it meant that we had to leave by 6 o'clock in the evening at the latest. When the time came, there was still no sign of Jack. I was strung up to breaking point, feeling that if I hesitated, all would be lost. I scribbled a note for Jack. I am taking the responsibility of leaving alone. Success can only come if we believe in it. If I fail, then it will be the fault of a non-specialist. He's putting the, putting the responsibility on himself as uh, he's going to do the navigation. Au revoir, old boy. And then Alan. No, like that <laughs> just decides, all right, I'm going to do it on my own. This I gave to a customs officer named Jean Stoddle, and then, with his help, put out to sea, borne along by a combination of anger, ambition, and confidence. My first task was to pass the straits and gain as much sea room as possible in order to pick up the canary's current. I was frightened of the coastal rocks and of being so inexperienced. I tried to keep as far out to sea as possible. I was so absorbed in my fright to break, to break into a new world that I was hardly aware of my loneliness, for when one passes from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic... It is not just a question of rounding a point. A difference of a few miles involves entering another dimension and another age. Even the terms of reference change. Time must be counted in weeks instead of days, and distances in hundreds of miles instead of tens. Moreover, in order to gain this world, I and my little boat had to undergo an almost impossible ordeal, like some story from the Arabian Nights. Anyone who has seen a river burst its banks or the sea pour through broken dikes with the great flood of water sweeping away everything in its path will have an idea of the strength of the really tremendous current against which I had to fight. When the great salmon of northern waters struggle against waters of this force, they are driven by the superhuman tireless strength which comes of their love and mating. To drive me through the straits I had my love of adventure, my burning desire to reach the open sea, and the call of the ocean which thrust itself at me as if to deny me any possibility of success. Happily, I had another ally to help me force this barrier, the east wind, but this wind could only be counted on for limited periods. Wind against current, that was the contest in which I had to become the master. That first night, I did not dare take a wink of sleep because the slightest inattention on my part would have found me driven back into the Mediterranean. Isn't this incredible? So he's, um, this is a chap who has set up a little team where he's not the, the boatman, he's not the navigator, he's not the seaman in this, he's the scientist that's there to prove the point. Now, unfortunately, because of situations, he's pushed into it himself. And uh, there's a little bit further on where he's like, uh, I have to like, oh, there you go. The next thing to master was the art of navigation. I knew how to sail and I could read the compass. So I only needed to learn to use the crass ruler and to determine my course. After a few tentative experiments, I found I can make it work. So his inability to navigate causes a situation later on, which we'll uh, we'll we'll cover briefly, and that is that um, he he's unable to uh, work out his longitude, which has pretty big ramifications when he's crossing the Atlantic. But I think in here now you can see a couple of bit things here. Firstly, it's an incredibly determined individual. He's not rash. He just he sees that his work, if it's if it's good, if it's used properly, if it's uh, shared with people that are on boats, if it's somehow integrated into the safety training on ships or the safety equipment on ships he can he can potentially save fifty thousand people like you're talking like you know what's that 900 people a week is that really possible that is, that's true right 52 weeks in a year fifty thousand people like what would you put yourself through to know that you're potentially saving the lives of 900 people a week like quite a lot i think and that's where he's at and i think there's also something in here which i think is very important which is we're reading here the the English translation because unfortunately my my language skills are not enough to take me into another language but um, these kind of books uh, uh, were something which I think in the 50s and 60s drove the French-speaking uh, nations to a, a great love of the sea which di- was dying out in other places and um, didn't have this kind of injection of uh, of adventure of passion of philosophy and of um, and, 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 and I don't know like and a love of the sea. I think that we had a lot of people writing books that were exciting and adventuresome, sometimes ghost-written, but they were flat and they didn't really necessarily transmit the, the, the great passion that people had for the sea. I think when you've got people like Jacques Cousteau, like Eric Tabaly, like um, uh, Bernard Martissier, like uh, Alain Bombard, revealing their stories, sharing their stories to people through the newspapers, through the radio, through their books, um, those people are going to be caught up in the enthusiasm and the infectious desire to be at sea that these people felt and that's why you know the golden globe race in the late 60s was a start definitely started in england but with france very much appearing in that with Bernard entry um and then very soon thereafter we start to get into the period where we're having things like the Vendée globe and as a solo non-stop around the world race the Vendée globe now has outstripped any other race that's similar it's been the same format the entire way through. Unlike the Volvo Race, the Whitbread Race, the Ocean Race, whatever that is. So it's the longest-lasting, um, you know, unchanged formatted race uh, around the world there is because it's driven by the the love of French-speaking people and the areas in France which, which you know, uh, are, are part of the sea and have the sea as their personality, their character. And uh, yeah, I think I think there's a start of that here. There's many other parts in this book which I found literally like difficult to read as someone who's spent a lot of time at sea and knows what it is to be out there and be lonely and all the rest of it he goes into a lot of uh, detail about that Um, his book is uh, informative because he keeps to the story of what happens on this you know epic journey out across the Atlantic to prove this point but it's also a beautiful book which goes into like how it feels to be on your own for a very long period of time what it feels like to be afraid of you know things that are swimming around under the boat, which for him is a big issue, or, or the the fear you might have as you approach a coast, or the frustration when you keep trying to get around a headland and you can't get around the headland. It's all here in this book, and um yeah, I I, I found it to be an incredibly um, is one like I don't want to say like a page page turner, but it, it was a page turn. I was turning the pages because I was reading it for a podcast. So let's be honest here. I'd every morning get up and and read it, but. Um, it wasn't a hard thing to do. I looked forward to it. I learned a lot from from this book and uh, I'll probably go back and read it a second time to make sure I, I picked it all up. Um, we come a little bit further along here to uh, chapter 10 um, where is now in the Canaries. He has safely got himself uh, from uh, Tangier to Casablanca and from Casablanca on then to the Canary Islands. And I'm just kind of uh, nipping ahead here because we are already approaching an hour And he hasn't actually set out across the Atlantic, which is the main gig. But um, we've all got the feeling that this guy, you know, is something special. Um, I can tell you that uh, he um, went home briefly to France during this period because his wife uh, had just had a child. So it's not like he was somebody who was in a situation where he could just bugger off and do something. He had his own uh, responsibilities and his own uh, needs in his life. And he put those to, to, to one side as well whilst he um, went and did this thing. He was very, very committed to this. And, um, I guess that's why I wanted to read the book also. Once I found out more about it, which I did do some research before I, uh, chose to, to, to share this book. And I found that he had kind of been left as someone in history that was seen as some, as a bit of a barn pot, as a, as a, as a heretic, as someone who, uh, Wanted to get famous or something, and then when you read the actual story of it, you realise this is a, a remarkable individual who did uh, something um, absolutely fantastic. Let's uh, let's have a scene here. Um, I think I think there's a bit here which we'll, we'll, I'll share with you, which you'll uh, you, you'll get it, what I'm, I get from this book. As if to encourage me on my way, a great three-masted sailing schooner, the cadet training ship of the Spanish Navy, was hove to where I had decided to cast off my tow. I felt that fortune in the guise of this survivor of the days of sail had contrived this encouraging gesture. There she lay, lifting gently in the swell, one of the last reminders of the ghost ships. Long voyages racked by scurvy, the castaways of Le of those who had died of hunger and had been engulfed in the man-eating sea. I had just cast off my toe when I saw the training ship's flag dip slowly in salute. All the cadets lined along the rail, removed their caps as I passed. The thought struck me for a moment that in all the world's navies, this was the manner of showing respect to the dead. To show I knew I would win through, I hoisted my sail smartly and slowly drew away from the little yachts, still tacking and crossing and saluting either with their flags or their mainsails. Gradually, they were lost from sight, all except the big schooner, who then gave me the last and most splendid salute. The midshipmen furled and then let go their three topsails in a whip crack of wind and canvas which echoed across the water. It sounded more as if they were greeting my triumph than honouring my departure. God, man, puts shivers up your spine, hey? This is... Uh, these guys also, you know, like the cadets on the training ship, they they knew what he was trying to do. It wasn't like at the time he was just some, some madman that was setting off. Everyone knew that he was... Going to try and prove this because it might be useful for people that were dying in boats at the rate of fifty thousand a year, if you don't count all the other ways that people died. Um, so I think there would be a lot of uh, respect and a lot of um, um, you know uh, heart from those who were on a boat watching him watching him set off. Um, well, let me let me break down what uh, what basically happens. The the trip across the Atlantic is initially easy for him. It's, uh, you know, he, he knows that it's going to work out with the fish juice and with the plankton and all the stuff that he's doing. And as fish start to come down around the boat, he starts to, um, have more and more fish around the boat. He's able to fish very, uh, effectively for them. And, um, in time, even as he gets further out into the Atlantic, um, he gets rainwater and he's able to store it. So in that way, it's not taking anything away from him to say that he, does indeed cross the Atlantic in this manner. Now, if, again, to just to repeat, if you want to hear this book, I have another podcast called Rare Nautical Reads. Um, I guess I was heading hard for that acronym of uh, RNR, the Royal Naval Reserve that I was part of in the UK. But RNR is uh, an easier way of saying it. But I discovered that people have no clue <laughs> what I'm meaning because it's not known by anybody. We've got about two, three hundred people a day downloading on that one. Say about 20,000 in in total now. But Rare Nautical Reads, you can find it anywhere that you find a podcast. And this is there, I think, split into about 18 different uh, parts, each about 20 minutes each. So very easy to consume. Um, But this journey out across the Atlantic, which uh, Lambombard starts on, is something which. made him makes him face a lot of other things right which is that you, he's completely and utterly on his own and he's also setting off on this thing as you might imagine very very confidently like everything's gonna be okay but he's doing it without a navigator without companionship which is not how he planned it and uh he uh starts to i'd say that things start to build up on him and he starts to become more and more uncertain and he, he does a good job of talking about that um he let's have a see here that the wind had now become predictable and regular i left my sail set night and day and with no land obstacles to avoid i was able to run before it without worry watching the slightly faster swell roll past me just as speed assures a cyclist balance so it gave me additional security if i had stopped the waves would have broken against my sternboard and flooded the boat I could not help feeling worried about my equipment, particularly the patched sail. He unfortunately ripped his sail just as he was leaving the Canaries. He stitches it up, but it's a great concern for him the entire way across the Atlantic. Wondering whether it would stay the course, I wrote in my log. Before I left, I was convinced that my chief anxiety would be to obtain food and drink, but it transpires that worry about equipment and the no less serious problem of humidity are worse. I have no option but to continue using the damp clothes I have with me otherwise the cold would kill me. And I noted, already at this early stage, a castaway should never take off his clothes, even if they are wet. I realised, even though I had become soaked to the skin on the second day, that wet clothes succeed in conserving the body's warmth. I was purposely wearing the sort of clothing that a castaway might have, trousers, shirt, a pullover, and a jacket. Wiser now from experience, I no longer regarded as figures of fun the mussel and shrimp catchers who always wear the warmest clothing they can get, with long woolen stockings and stout waterproof boots, in spite of the weight involved when trudging through the shallows. Can no longer determine my longitude, he next writes, with certainty. I just... I shall just have to guess it from the time the sun reaches its meridian. So I think in that, you know, he, like we all start to realize when you set off on a boat, you have one concept about what it's going to be about and what the problems may be. And then a whole other range of things come into place. And I know what he's, he's only really worried about his sail, particularly. There are things that come along later that make it harder. But um, I know that feeling from like, you think every single wave is going to be the one that's going to be the problem at the beginning, right? Or every time you go and go to sleep with the autopilot on, this is going to be the time that something pops out and smashes into you. Um, You start worrying about the gear, worrying about the the day-to-day stuff, which is no different at all than you might have worried about at home. The actual issue of being alone on the ocean for him, his worry about food and water, all that passes by. I don't think our brains are big enough to think about this stuff. You always find a little thing that you can start to worry about and you start to niggle away at it and niggle away at it just keep pulling on that loose thread and later on we'll find that he has a few issues with um, persecution uh, mania where he's uh, he thinks everyone's against him he thinks everything including inanimate objects is against us um, and against him rather and um, that starts to really weigh on it the psychology of it starts to become a bigger issue almost than the, the physiology um, he says the main thing was to be of good Heart And I was full of hope during most of the crossing. It seemed as if I had left only the night before, although I had already been at sea a week. Now that I am back, I am often asked if I was not bored. That, at least, is something that never happens at sea. This adventure formed a separate compartment in my life. Although each day seemed interminable, time had lost all relative importance. There was no points of reference on which to base its passage, such as appointments, the day's normal rigid timetable, Time passed without my being aware of it. Only later, when this existence had acquired a patina of normality, did time begin to weigh heavily when I was able to compare a particular day with others just like it. That's something which I found a lot when I was um, uh, at sea doing the solo stuff I've done. Not so much now. I'd say when I first did solo stuff at sea, um, I can do 30 days at sea on my own now without really worrying about it too much because i've already been there i've already done it it's a skill set that you have to like learn how to deal with that i think there's a if i can find it there's a nice quote about that later on but as we heard there the largest issue that he's to deal with um, is starting to become uh obvious he's had an issue where the strap on his watch broke and it's a a a wrist uh, like a self-winding watch you know the motion of your wrist winds it so he unclips it from his wrist but then clips it onto his, I think he ends up wearing it around his neck or clipping it on his shirt, thinking that the movement in the boat will be the thing that um, uh, winds it, but it, it's not, It's it doesn't wind it. And so it stops. And as soon as it stopped, of course, he's lost his reference for his uh, longitude. And by then he starts to uh, have to guess his longitude and that starts to become a a real problem for him. And I, I guess uh, I'm not saying anything out of, uh, out of order here to say that that there comes a point later on when he's able to get onto a ship and he discovers that he's 600 miles out from where he thought he was um, and, and not in a, in a beneficial way. So, you know, it's uh, it starts very early on and that starts to really um, edge into his mind all the time. This is where he's starting to really become a, a, there are some little things starting to create problems for him. And even in the writing of the book and obviously the book was written later on by somebody who was um, at home. You know, probably well fed and watered, and, and putting the book together, with an editor or whatever it was. He um, he allows to stay in the book his uh, repeated lamenting about his concerns about how long till I get there, how long till I get there, how long till I get there. And I think what I got from that is the fact that we are all affected by the um, preconceptions about what's going to happen next. In the military, you would use um, uh, exercises to create dislocation of expectations that. You can't allow yourself to have a series of things which you believe are going to happen, which then is the only path to success for you in a situation you're in. Because if things don't run in that way, then you've got a problem, right? Psychologically, your uh, your roadmap falls apart and then physiologically, you can start to fall apart. Your entire situation starts to fall apart because preconceived plans that you had don't transpire in the way that you're expecting, And then you start to, you have got so much attached to that, so much investment in them that there is no way forward. The idea of a plan on many occasions is actually just a illusion of control. It's, you know, we can plan all we like, but you could walk out of the planning meeting and go under the wheels of a bus or have an aneurysm. And that's the end of that. So even the best laid plan is only ever a a weather forecasted guess of what's going to happen next. He has got with him a book, which is called the Raft Book, which at that time was the one given to people that were you know it was it was available in the equipment that came in the laugh ra- life raft and it's got all sorts of things that's starting to um uh, uh you know irritate him as he's going along it's talking a lot about what birds should be sighted this far from land that far from land and he starts to get a really good feeling that oh, wow i'm making good time here and i must have picked up the current because i'm already seeing this kind of bird and it's only ever seen 300 miles out and Literally, for days upon days upon days, and, and end, he starts to believe, like, any minute now, I'm going to arrive. Any minute now, I'm going to arrive. And then, as I say, later on, we're going to see he gets picked up by a, a vessel. He chooses to go on board and he gets um, some information about his position, only to find out that he is um, 600 miles out, which then underlines the fact that everything that was in those books must have been wrong that was what he was basing his plan on. The plan started to not show, you know, I'm going to be there on Tuesday. And then Tuesday comes around, he's not there. I'll be there on Thursday. Oh, Thursday comes around, he's still not there. And his psychological situation starts to uh, fall apart. So I I found a great uh, affinity in that. And I think all the way through this, obviously, I'm just skipping through some of the things here, trying to bring to you a bit of a feeling of the book and a feeling of his story and trying to As I flip through, read some of the nicer parts of it. But the thing that I found was that uh, there were a number of moments in this where I think only sailors can have affinity with this person, and maybe those only perhaps who have been outside of land for a few days. That you start to get a feel for what it was that he went through Um, the physical thing with the boats and the physical physicality of it to be on the boat, which is very different from what um, a lot of people would experience in their everyday life. If you're not as fit as you might want to be uh, suddenly being put in a situation where your body is taxed this hard could be extraordinarily difficult. And uh, he, I think, um, you know, I don't think that in 1950 setting off on something like this, he'd be necessarily thinking about his diet before he went, or indeed his uh, exercise before he went. But it's uh, it's pretty pretty hard life being out on the sea in the way that he is here now. Okay, let's have a see. Uh, uh, something that does affect him all the way through on this is the uh, sharks and what have you. And there's a good little instant here that um, allows us to understand uh, the the, uh, considerable range of psychological pressures that he's under, which start to uh, make a very difficult um, picture for him. Um, During the night of the 12th and 13th of November, I had another visit from a shark, or at least so I hoped. There was no way of telling whether it was a shark or a swordfish. Swordfish are something that he's realized are a real menace. Um, they could just be like looking around his raft and accidentally just slit the entire boat open. Um, they you know, they're massive protuberance on the front of their faces, that massive like bone material, whatever it is with those sharp spikes on either side of it. It looks like something out of a Disney cartoon, to be honest, but just one wrong move from one of those and uh, his little boat's uh, gone. The sharks he's been doing a good job with were just giving him a clout on the nose but he doesn't want to do that to a swordfish because if it gets irritated and thrashes its head around too much that could be the thing that empties his or finishes his his uh, his his raft journey in a, in a hot second and and his life as he's in the middle of nowhere right every time a shark appeared during the day i felt perfectly safe i gave it the ritual clout on the nose and off it went but during the night fearing that one of those devilish creatures the swordfish might spear me with his sword i was no longer able to be so bold I had to remain watchfully awake, trying to identify the intruder and waiting wide-eyed for it to make off. Sleep was effectively banished and often it seemed that sharks or other creatures were playing some sort of ball game during the night with my dinghy without my daring to interfere. Okay, so he's got this this omnipresent uh, uh, effect all the time. It's just something's just nudging the raft, just going under the raft. Like, think what that would do to you. You're half awake, half asleep. If you've got kids, you know how awake you have to be even when they're you know meant to be asleep you've got to be half awake sort of or very ready to to, to leap up if uh, if something's going on now you've got a different kind of force now it's that this thing might just go under the raft and accidentally graze across the bottom of them slit it up and you're going to be in the water um with a little while to go before you drown that's his only option it's a rubber raft the issue he's got at the moment um is something which is also starts to play on his mind later on, is that uh, whilst he set off with uh, no water, no food, as we've said, he's catching his food as he goes along. He is allowed to keep rainwater, and it is raining. And um, that starts to become a problem. Have a listen. He says, uh, it was still raining in torrents. Under such a deluge, I was obliged to stretch the tent right over my head, but it formed great pockets of water which trickled down through the gaps. After a certain time, the weight threatened to break the guy ropes and I had to push from underneath to spill the water overboard. It must be difficult to realise the sacrifice involved for a castaway in thus jettisoning his reserve of fresh water. Even without sharks and swordfish, sleep... Oh, and let's, <laughs> let's not run on too quickly there, Chris. Even without sharks and swordfish, sleep had become practically impossible. The rain thundered down, and every quarter of an hour or so, I had to heave it overboard. An unbelievable quantity of water fell on the tent and trickled through every crevice. Yeah, here we go. This is the bit that I wanted to uh, to share with you. I began to believe, in a confused sort of way, in the active hostility of certain inanimate objects. I might decide to write uh, up the log or work out some calculation. I would sit down with a pencil ready at hand, and I only needed to turn round for ten seconds. And it found some means of disappearing it was like a mild form of persecution mania although up till then i had always been able to meet such annoyances with good humor thinking of the similar misfortunes suffered by the three men in a boat so this is a, a good thing and I've, I've felt this i'm sure you have as well when you you're in a situation where you're tired and you're kind of strung out and uh, things are starting to get on top of you and um, little things start to irritate you start to feel like things are just taking a, a bit of a bent towards you and that the the universe is somewhat against you. And uh, this, I think, is something which I see on a boat a lot, particularly um, something which I try and work with then with the watch routine. Um, the watch routine on a boat, uh, for a lot of people, it's just sealed in at four hours on, four hours off. Right. But there are many other ways of doing this and you shouldn't underestimate the uh, appropriateness of changing up the watch schedule and using one of those other systems to alleviate uh, small evidences small symptoms that people's mental circumstances are starting to change so his persecution mania little angle little moments where he's like god you know where's the pencil gone he's getting super ir- irritable about it if I had him on my boat we we're in a different situation on a normal boat and sea doing normal things um, I would be looking at like this person needs a little extra bit of sleep here this is something i can interact with as a captain we can do a little change in the watches and say hey you know don't have to like meet it head on like you need more sleep because you can end up with people saying hey you're not my parent." certainly in a in a modern situation um where it's not uh you know a militaristic um, situation where they must do what the captain says but um to, to avoid uh kind of hurt opinions or hurt feelings rather um what you could do is say hey i'm going to swap you over to the other watch um because i think you'll be able to help out the guys with the xyz that they're doing or i think you'll be useful in this or whatever it is you can kind of you know through it up in any way you want but you recognize that person's gonna need and it might just be that they need like the four hours sleep you can offer them as they swap to the other watch and that is all they need is a reset they might be good then for 10 days personally i've found that three hours on three hours off works very very well i would never go back to four on four off I've also done three, 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 three during the night, and then two six-hour watches in the day, working on the Swedish system, which seems to really suit some people, but those six hours can be very, very long. But um, three-on-three-off is what I do, and yeah, watching for those little details. He is uh, an MD, and he's able to name it as uh, Persecution Mania. I wonder if he did at the time. I think this is where, when you've been on your own for long periods of time, you start to... Um, recognize these things, you start to understand it. I remember one of the Von, very famous Vendee Globe skippers, maybe it was Loic Luke, Luke Perron, I can't remember now, but um, he was saying that uh, the first time doing a solo around the world trip is like jumping out of an aircraft. Um, it's only on the second one that you actually understand what's happening around you and can kind of focus on the details. It's, otherwise, it's just, you know, a lot of wind in the in your ears and over. Powering your senses um and you don't really know what's happening. I think that's the same thing for um the, the situation for the captain here, for sorry, for the for the for the doctor here, and that I see when people are on a boat at sea for the first time doing a big voyage. It's just all so different that they they have no concept what they're getting into, no built-up tactics to deal with it, and they can start getting irritated at each other, they get irritated at little things, they start missing meals, they start it's like a debilitating spiral that starts to go down and down. It can end in people getting very, very um, pissed off with each other, you know, which we want to try and avoid, obviously, as a captain. Um, the other thing which he's got going on is this increasing issue with his longitude. So it, the details of how he makes this mistake and what the mistake means to him is it uh, is built up in the book, as you might imagine. But we're on chapter like ten or something here. Mid Passage is the name of the chapter, and uh, I think this line should underline for us kind of how difficult the situation is. He says. I had not the faintest idea where I was, okay? With no sun for three days, I was in a state of complete ignorance. And on Sunday the 16th, when I got my sextant ready, I was in a fever of apprehension. By a miracle, I had not drifted much to the south. So he can do latitude pretty easily. That's a very easy calculation. But um, at this point, he has no idea of latitude and he has no idea of longitude or that he's certainly certainly starting to realize he doesn't really know his uh, longitude situation. But he keeps like using like schoolyard logic to work out like how it could be this or how it could be that in terms of a longitude. And, but he has no idea, this is, the, is the unfortunate uh, unfortunate story. And that must be massively um, um, massively working on his uh, subconscious, as you can imagine, along with everything else. Um, here he says, a disturbing instant then showed that I could not afford to relax my vigilance for one moment. During the storm, I had tried to protect the after part of the, le her- le the heretic, the Heretic, little boat, from the breaking waves by trailing a large piece of rubberized cloth fixed firmly to the ends of my two floats. So across the back of his zodiac, this seemed to divert the force of the waves as they broke behind me. Even though the storm had died down, I saw no point in removing this protection. But the following night, a frightful noise brought me out of my sleeping bag at once. My protective tail was no longer there. The piece of cloth had been torn away. I checked anxiously that the floats had not been damaged and that they were still firmly inflated. Some creature, which I never saw, probably attracted by the vivid yellow color of the cloth, which hung down between the floats, had torn it off by jumping out of the water. This it had done with such precision that there had been no other visible sign of its attack. So I think what I like about that is the fact you get a feeling his boat is so exposed to danger that the best thing he can do in a storm to stop it being buffeted too hard from behind is to just put a piece of rubberized nylon essentially hanging across the floats on the back of it like where your outboard would be if you were you know a modern situation with a little boat like that and that's kind of like dampening down the effect of these waves hitting the back of him but a, a fish something from the ocean has reared up ripped this off now from his point of view what does this mean a resource that he had on board, the piece of material, is now gone. The attachment points where it was on the boat have been potentially compromised, like the attachment point may have become unglued or it might have torn the actual nature of his boat. The part of the structure of his boat that has been affected by the random attention of some big fish that's leapt out underneath or onto this uh, this piece of yellow material and ripped it away so he's lost a resource it's further underlined how delicate his boat is he's potentially damaged his boat and this protection from the waves is now gone and i think can you imagine you're in a you're in a 12 foot boat it's 5 foot wide you're in the middle of the atlantic and like part of it goes missing because a fish decides to take it apart and in the process you almost damage the boat and sink it. it's like the amount of stress he must have been under was absolutely unbelievable um I, I i as i read through this book i was very very happy firstly that i decided to share it and i was um uh just amazed that the the story itself is not known more and and it's not um you know he's he's not more more of a hero figure to to the people From what he was able to uh uh accomplished with this was absolutely incredible and there were so many people that said he couldn't do it they all had ideas like there would not be any fish in the middle of the sea and he um he would uh, end up with renal failure and uh, he wouldn't be able to catch the fish and really obvious things that you know he he just blew blew straight through those those limits he did his research he knew what was going on and he managed to show very very easily that uh, it was possible. Now I say he managed to show it easily. He went out and he did it um, pretty much within a couple of years of coming up with a theory and he did it on his own when he was going to do it with two folks and he didn't know anything about navigation. Now was he lucky? Yeah he was definitely lucky but he showed that it was something that that was important and did need to be known by castaways and I guess it just makes me sad that, uh, that that message wasn't more clearly transmitted through time and that we weren't then all more a lot more available to the concept that uh, his techniques as he demonstrated here could be uh, could be very important you know for for life saving in the event of going into a life raft Um, so let's uh, we're going now to the point where he is uh, he believes that he's uh, only a couple of hundred miles out from uh, the Caribbean that's that's the point here this the book starts to build this interesting tension where he's um, seeing um look at this he saw three white-tailed tropic birds together this morning my castaways handbook says that this means that land cannot be more than 80 miles away just as the storm reached me a frigate bird flew over another encouraging note in the handbook the frigate bird never spends the night at sea and is seldom found more than 100 miles from land in one exceptional instance one was sighted 300 miles from the nearest coast at two o'clock in the afternoon i saw a northern gannet not very far away Another bird seldom seen more than 90 miles out to sea. All this confirms that I cannot have far to go. Now I can tell you without ruining the book, at this point he's got 700 miles to go. His issue perhaps is that he's still closer to the Cape Verde Islands than anything else. But the information that was being uh, transmitted, passed to him through this um, uh, castaways book, he ends up becoming really, even in his um, logbook notes that uh, translated into this book, He is getting like irritated, like mega irritated at these people and what they put in the book. He feels that they don't know what they're talking about and that they, you know, they don't have any right to put this stuff into um, into a book for castaways. And then he starts to talk about the fact that this could be a massive dent to people's morale. And uh, as it was starting to affect him, it was starting to really affect his uh, morale as he believes he's getting closer and closer and that he should be there very soon and these birds are telling him yes indeed he's close enough and then it just never happens and we just have many many entries now this part of the book is kind of laid out as his log was uh, many entries where he's just uh, I should be clear I should be here if I do this I do that and um, this is a, a a nice bit here where he lays out his own reasoning. At this point, he's a week late, a week later than he thought he was going to be. And we now know from this point in perspective that he's still got 20 days to go. But his point of view, he's already a week late getting in. He says, Tuesday the 2nd of December, and brackets in here, my morale was very low on the log. It is quite difficult to decipher. Still nothing in sight. Saw a new type of bird this morning, a Manx shearwater, also described as not flying more than 100 miles out to sea. This seems to be the evidence for and against the proximity of land. Against, hour of sunrise, sunset, zenith and moonrise. But the first three already showed an error of about an hour on my departure when I knew my longitude. The hour of moonrise would put me at about 50 degrees west, but this is contradicted by the reading given when it sets. Four, hour of moonset, which makes me about 60 degrees west irregularity of the wind, which falls at night, frigate birds, few birds in general, but new types and not a single albatross. I have made 50 or 60 miles a day, which was my average on the first lap to the Canaries, which is to say about 2,000 and 2,400 miles. So there can only be 180 and 300, between 180 and 380 miles to go. At best, I'm at longitude 59 degrees or 60, at worst, only at 50. If the wind had held, I would have been ashore a week ago, but it's extremely light and only blows five or six hours a day, less than between Tangier and Casablanca. It looks as if I shall never cover the remaining two or three hundred miles. Nothing is more exasperating than to have logged 2,500 miles in a month and then need 30 days for the remaining 300. I think we can all... (laughs) I think we can all uh, sympathize with that feeling, right? That last bit, particularly if you haven't got uh, engine available, can be very, very difficult. I'm beginning to lose hope completely. My experiment has now lasted 44 days, but I cannot bear the idea of failure so near success. If only I could pass on some news, but have neither seen plane nor boat. As for the raft book, all its information about birds is tripe and serves only to lowers one's morale. So he's getting very irritable. He's also getting extremely strung out about his wife, the fact that she's got no weather for him. So no weather. (laughs) I see a word in front of me in the book. I say it. That's how my brain works. I feel like Ron Burgundy. I just read whatever's in front of me. But no, his wife has had a a kid uh, recently. He's desperate to get home to her. She's got no news for him. He has uh, no concept when he's going to be there. It's very difficult to imagine just how hard his situation was there's no one to talk to there's nothing to do he's only eating fish like literally putting a couple he's now got down to a point where he's not even pressing the fish as he had been doing before in a press he's just literally cutting a slits in the side of them and sucking the juice directly out of them he then begins at page 182 here to start to write notes to people that might find his body in the boat like this is what i want for my wife this is what i want in case uh you know there's um uh, notes can be used and made into a book. A lot of it, he's getting irritated at the people that are doing these raft books, these castaway books. Um, but then there is a moment where something comes along, which is absolutely unbelievable. And that is that he sees a ship, okay? So let's have a quick see. Um, the next day, the miracle happened. And I'm working on the basis here that yes, there were spoilers in this, but um, you know, <laughs> You can read the book and still enjoy it and if you don't read the book you've got the message. So there's spoilers here. The next day the miracle happened and it was another Wednesday. He had a little bit of a rant earlier on about everything that happened on this journey that's important happens on a Wednesday. By then it required an effort to get up in the morning. I usually woke about sun up, but I was in no hurry to look around the horizon having become convinced that it would be as empty as ever. I usually continued to lie in my sleeping bag until the rays of the sun rising in the sky started to get hot. That morning, at about ten o'clock, I took a cursory glance outside the tent, and then jumped as if I had been given an electric shock. A ship! I shouted almost involuntarily, and there on the starboard quarter about two and a half miles away was a ship on a course which must bring it across my own. It was a big cargo boat of about 7,000 tonnes making quite slow speed. There was no sign that I had been sighted and I fumbled feverishly for my heliograph to flash the sun's rays into the eyes of those on the bridge like a child trying to annoy passerby. At the end of what seemed like an interminable wait, someone saw me and the ship changed course to cut across my stern. Okay, we're going to read a little bit more from that, but I think we should just note heliograph, right? So that could be literally a CD anything with a hole in it where you can look through and see the effect you're having on the target you want to be flashing it so that you get the the angle sort of bisected between the angle of the sun and the um and the place that you're trying to shine it at airplanes ships whatever it is you just need to flash 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 it's very easy to see something like that see and it can be seen very very large distance away and remember that here um, you know they don't know he's there this is 1950 this is a very honest account of a heliograph working for sure and I think we should just you know bear that in mind that piece of equipment uh, if you haven't got anything else with you absolute lifesaver my morale he writes had risen at one bound I was convinced that the ship must be just sort of its destination in one of the West Indies harbors i had been right all the time I was near land I waved my little trickle flag at the end of an oar. Imagine how proud I was when the ship, as it drew near me, ran up a Union Jack to the peak and then dipped it three times. The salute given to warships met on the high seas. I replied by waving my own little flag. And then we were a beam, and the captain switched on his loud halo and asked, Do you need any assistance? Just the time, please, and my exact longitude, I replied. 49 degrees, 50 minutes. Okay, now I'm going to add a pause there. <laughs> Because he thought he was at 60 degrees, 10 degrees difference, 600 miles. He's in a real pit anyway with what's going on. He's got this kind of persecution mania. He's worried about the sharks underneath the boat. He's eating fish. It's raining to a point where he's like just been soaked for weeks on end. He's on his own. Um, You know, he's been in previous pages writing up the notes like a will essentially. And now he's just discovered that he is... 600 miles from where he thought he thought he was going to land the next couple of days. Now there's weeks left to go. I was exactly 10 degrees, he says. That is to say 600 miles from my estimated position. I felt as if someone had hit me over the head with a hammer. It was more than I could stand. Seizing the skull, I made for the boat, muttering feverishly to myself. This is it. 53 days. I give up. The captain hailed me again. Will you come aboard? I will get the dinghy hoisted in, the experiment is over, I thought. After all, 53 days must prove something. I bumped the ship's side and climbed on board. She was the Arrakaka, a big passenger cargo steamer out of Liverpool. I was met by a short, sturdy man about 50 years old who was in a state of considerable excitement, Captain Carter of Liverpool. He asked me straight away, would you like us to take you and your equipment on board? We are making for Georgetown, British Guiana. My first reaction was to answer yes, But then I remembered my experience with the city for I thought of my friends and the seafaring folk at Boulogne, who would say, so you didn't get across the Atlantic after all. The 53 days the voyage had lasted would have served no purpose. Although I had sufficiently proved my theory, the man in the street, or rather the ordinary seaman, would regard my giving up at this point as invalidating the whole experiment. If I was to be instrumental in saving all those human lives then my success had to be complete. Only thus could I render a real service to the world of the sea. I pulled myself together and asked the captain for a few minutes to make up my mind. In the meantime, he offered me a freshwater shower, which I accepted with gratitude. While I let the delicious water run over me, I heard one officer remark to another in the passage, you have to hand it to the French, they will try anything. That made up my mind. I would go on i made a quick mental calculation and realized that at my present speed i would need another 20 days to reach land it was then the 10th of december which meant arriving about the 3rd of january in order to take my position with certainty i was going to need the pilot book for 1953. like i find that completely amazing like i think we all know that sometimes you can be absolutely at your wit's end and then something will come along which can just turn things around it could be you know, a friendly bit of assistance, it could be a quick bit of food, it could be a five-minute rest, it could be a, a friendly word, it could be anything. that is suddenly a mental landscape that you've been inhabiting for X amount of time is suddenly changed. Like, he's in a raft, right? We're happy with that. It's in a 12-foot by 5-foot inflatable boat in the middle of the Atlantic He's now found out he's got 600 miles more to go than he thought. He thought he was just about to be there. He's got 20 more days baking under the midday sun, sitting in water a lot of the time, being buffeted by sharks and God knows what during the night being assailed by storms with this sail that looks like it's going to rip apart any moment. And yet he decides to continue on. He decides to continue on for you and for me, and I find that completely amazing. He wanted to make sure that people had this piece of information, that they could find out that, yeah, you can actually survive if you absolutely have to, as long as you can get the fish out the sea and you're willing to subsist. It isn't going to be pleasant. You're not going to come wandering out of this in a top hat and tails. It's going to be bloody hard, as his physical situation when he got to land proved, but I would like to. Well, we'll talk about that in a second. But his his actual stop here on the boat is probably the thing that which kind of like offs, off offset a, a better outcome perhaps than he could. Uh, yeah, than he actually got. Let me let me clarify that. Afterwards, after he'd done this, he accepts a very small meal while he's on this boat, like literally a bit of kidney, an egg, some cabbage, and uh, and a bit of fresh water. Right, almost nothing. But at that point, as his psychology changes because he's had this. Morale injection. It it doesn't go quite the same for his body, which suddenly has been in it's been in this survival situation for weeks on end, for fifty odd days. Then he has this little bit of normal food, and his body goes, oh cool. Well, you don't need me to be in uh, survival mode anymore, so I'm just going to go back to normal. And that creates a massive issue for him, and he loses way more weight in the next twenty days than he did in the preceding fifty days. And he has all kinds of cramps and all kinds of issues, and he puts a lot of his Difficulties physically that he had when he got off the raft at the end, down, and a lot of other people at the time did as well. In fact, I think at the time they said, had they known that he'd had that little meal, they would have thought that he probably would die in the next 20 days because it's such a well known thing for people who have been in absolute starvation, obviously, at the end of the Second World War this kind of situation unfortunately as they went through germany and they started to realize the breadth and depth of the holocaust and what happened all the people are fortunately in these terrible terrible places where they've been kept um if they ate food too quickly it could be disastrous for their bodies so this was a very very difficult decision for him to to take on board the boat but one which like rallied his mental position but the tiny meal that he had on board did not do good things for him but he very, very importantly decided to continue on, um, and I think here, this uh, he says, this is the bit that I love. Here he says, um he says, the captain took me into the chart house, showed me my exact position, and gave me a note of the declinations I would have to observe as I approached the land. He gave me a pilot book with the 1953 figures and presented me with a copy of the superb British Admiralty sailing instructions, which he dedicated to me. Then, crossing the deck with slightly uncertain steps, but still perfectly firm on my feet, I made for the rail, where they had put down a Jacob's Ladder for me to regain the heretic. Most of the crew were there to, share, most of the crew were there to cheer me on, promising to meet me again on land, and the captain seemed much moved. Just as I was about to go down the ladder, he cried, What can I do for you? You must let me do something. Is there nothing that will be of assistance? Then I remembered that I had heard no bark during the whole of the journey and said that I would very much like to hear on Christmas night the 6th Brandenburg Concerto. One of the gifts I had received on board the Arachica was a new battery for my wireless set. I'll turn the world upside down if necessary, he replied. I give you my word, you will have your concerto for Christmas. I dropped the tow line and the Arachica waited for me to stand off a little before starting her engines so that my fragile craft should not be sucked into the powerful propellers. A light breeze had sprung up and I was in no hurry to take advantage of it, so I hoisted my sail and set course for the west. Our meeting had lasted an hour and a half. The Arachica slowly gathered way and amidst the bellowing of her siren, dipped her flag three times again in salute. my goodness. I gotta tell you, the first time I read that I had to reread it like 20 times before I could get through it without crying that the feeling of being on your own in the ocean if you felt it <clears throat> yeah you can look to be independent in life and you can look to be you know out ahead and and doing things different to other folks you can look to be um, to make yourself alone you can look to be independent but if you cross the boundary to loneliness. That is a dark and foreign land. And there's a bit somewhere else on this book. I'm not sure if exactly it comes up just now, but he's talking about the fact that there's no way of assessing how loneliness will uh, affect you until you've actually been through it because uh, it's not something that you can kind of um, inventory like uh, items that you'd be putting onto the boat. Your reaction to being on your own is something that's totally unknown to you until It happens to you, you know, and he'd been very, very definitely alone. We're talking about 90 minutes he's on that vessel. And during that time, it's enough to mentally get him to decide to go back in the raft, which is unbelievable. There's a bit earlier on where he's talking about the fact that he's got a few boils. He's got a few rashes. It's difficult to know. You can lie down on the bottom of the boat. You can lie on the pontoon. You can sit. You can sit on the boards. There's nowhere else to be. He doesn't want to go in the water because he's seen all these sharks and stuff like this is little hell hole that he's decided to go back into and he's decided to go back there so that people like us that go out on the ocean will benefit from his sacrifice and uh i think the the captain's reaction there where he um he he says to him i'll find a way for that to happen it does indeed happen he contacts the bbc and when uh captain uh, when um dr alan is uh in uh, barbados where he finishes up the bbc contact him and, and and celebrate with him the fact that he's made it there he arrives just before christmas and they stay will still play for you bach's sixth brandenburg concerto um you know out of respect for you after the captain of the Arachica asked them to do it so you know I say there's lots of spoilers in this. Most of the people that are listening to this won't go back and read the book. I would hope that you go and listen to it on Rare Nautical Reads because that'd be good for me. But uh, (laughs) it's one of those things that maybe you don't, but you should still have an opportunity to understand how fantastic the book is. So I'm going to wind my neck in there and stop reading from this fantastic book. (laughs) I'm going to make it that you're going to have to go and find it if you want to say it's all there. Um, It's about 220 pages and it's, uh, I think in... 18 parts or something like that over on Rare Nautical Reads, each about 20 minutes long. Um, I would take a little time and have a look up who Dr. Alan Bombard is. Uh, so he died at the age of 81. So clearly, uh, the experiment that he went through did not uh, overtly affect his uh, health going forwards. Um, he crossed the Atlantic in 65 days in an inflatable rubber raft with no food nor water when he went on board. Um, He lived entirely off the ocean. He did that with very, very simple fishing supplies and a little net that he used to catch uh, plankton and subsist on the kind of puree that they formed. Um, And he he did that specifically to try and save lives. And uh, I'd be very interested to hear your feedback on this stuff if you. But you have to base it on your actual lived experience or scientific facts that are from peer-reviewed documents so don't send me the i don't think you can because uh, i've done it i've i've lived on very very little fresh water i've done it for two weeks and i did it using some of the techniques or vague kind of understandings of roughly what he'd done um i don't think it's healthy to do it i don't think that you should take medical advice from someone who's uh uh, major skill set as being able to tie knots as mine is but um this chap was an md he did it he survived he was lauded as a hero by the entire french nation and still is you know many decades later there's something in there isn't there there's something in there that we should know that should be taught he said that um he thought there should be a, a map of the atlantic put onto the bottom of rafts uh, of boats that regularly cruise the atlantic so they would have that always as a reference, um, if they did need to drift across the Atlantic. I kind of see his point, but I think that would be very, very good if the inside of life rafts had a lot of information printed on the inside of them that could be useful, that could be you know, morale building. I think that the uh, importance of morale should not be underestimated. When you're packing your grab bag, you can put plastic-coated playing cards in there. You can put something like a little plastic-based game, like a mini mastermind or something like There's things you can put in there that would help the morale. There's things you could put in there that could help with the fishing. There's things that you could put in there that might help with puncture uh, um, repair if you needed to, something that's better than the the patches which are in the life raft. I think there's a lot you could do if you knew, oh my goodness, some guy drifted across the Atlantic for 65 days with no food and water, but here are the issues he dealt with, the psychological stuff, the physical stuff, the, the fish, the this, the that. Like that's a real world example of what it's like to be in a life raft. And a lot of the other stuff is total guesses and sorting one from the other is a difference between knowing how to deal with that situation and having a high morale and a good physiological situation and starting to realize it's not quite what I thought it was. My plan's falling apart Oh, here goes my mental situation. And then the body soon peters out thereafter, as they found out in the second world war, those poor young people dying in the Atlantic because they didn't have the um, the strength of character essentially to, to win on through. So I hope that there's something there that uh, that you personally can go and seek out. So try it on Rare Nautical Reads. There's uh, four or five books there you might like. They're all coming from this fantastic library uh, donated to me by uh, Bruce Hasse on behalf of his father, Rudy Hasse. And uh, I would like that um, these essential pieces of information. We've got the ROA Survival Book. I don't think the ROA so- Survival Book also covers what happens if you're in a life raft for more than X amount of time, right? And I think the reality is in most situations these days, you're going to come and get picked up pretty quickly. But it'd be pretty darn useful to know something else is available to help you just keep your morale up in case it's a little bit longer than you expected. Or, you know, I hope this never happens to anybody listening to this. uh, You're in a life raft for a long period. I spent 24 hours in a life raft for a charitable do, which I did in the UK. It's not comfortable, comfortable. It's not nice. It's not warm. It's not good at all. But uh, read something like 116 Days Adrift by uh, Morris and Marilyn Bailey and you'll realize just how important it is to know how to deal with that situation. So I'd love your feedback on this one, CSM, themariner at gmail.com. Uh, it's a funny way to kind of do a book review. Where I read bits of it to you and kind of skim through and give you an idea of it. But, um, you know, that's what we're here for. We're having a chat. It's, a, it's me sitting across from you in the library here telling you about a book I read for an hour and a half. And But I, I encourage you to go and read it and perhaps in doing so, you will discover the uh, the beauty of uh, the language and the philosophy and the the culture that uh, I think pervades a lot of French uh, discussion about sailing. And um, maybe that'll increase your your joy for it if uh, if you don't actually have to take the advice of some, <laughs> in your own three month journey across the Atlantic or whatever it is, two month journey for Alain Bombard, four months for the Baileys. Yeah, it's uh, an unbelievable situation. So. Good. There we go. We're drawing in towards uh, an hour and 45 minutes. Uh, If you haven't already, please consider going and having a look at uh, patreon.com. We've got a growing community of people there. There's more and more content starting to go up on the Patreon site now, and everything I'm going to be doing is focused around that. The idea is to increase your safety and your seamanship skills. Um, You get an early look at the YouTube stuff and consultation on the things that I put into there, and we'll have your questions Uh, answered via the podcast or by the YouTube channel. Um, There's plenty of opportunities for learning more about seamanship and safety through these uh, videos we do which only go out on Patreon. And the newer format which I'm putting together now is that the stuff I'm showing on YouTube is like a contracted version of a much longer video. Um, It's great to be involved in what's going on on YouTube. There's potentially an opportunity for some revenue there. But for me, what I want to do is get everything really focused there on Patreon and then uh, for a very small amount, $5 a month, you just support kind of what's going on here and get access to some more of the um, materials. But that uh, I think there's a way for me to move forward where I can create really a great body of, uh, of uh, information and put it on Patreon. And just getting that uh, small amount of money from each person that accesses it is a, a very modern but very possible business model. I'm going to really try it in 2023 because it's just so difficult to do the kind of charter work that I've been doing before. From an insurance point of view, from a um, uh, commercial coding point of view, from people trying to travel to the events, from the massively rising prices for all this stuff. I think another way of doing it is just I present it here on the podcast through YouTube and on Patreon. And then a large number of people putting a small amount of money in each is a a small sacrifice and can uh, can keep this going long term. Maybe we can get out in a life raft. I've got about three life rafts, actually, which are out of service, which would be interesting, wouldn't it? Hmm. Okay, write in if you want to see me do a couple nights in a life raft. But wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you right now are safe and well and fed and watered, unlike Dr. Alain Bombard. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.